0: As with our readings in previous weeks, I won't be reading all of the verses from chapters 18 and 19. In fact, we'll focus on chapter 18, but uh, touch on chapter 19. Uh, let's turn then, not just the pages of Scripture, but also our hearts to attend to this, the Word of God. The Word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit withholds his hand from injustice executes true justice between man and man walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully he is righteous he shall surely live declares the lord god if a father if he fathers a son who is violent a shedder of blood who does any of these things though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest and takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself." Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. Does not defile his neighbor's wife. Does not oppress anyone. Exacts no pledge. Commits no robbery. But gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment. Withholds his hand from iniquity. Takes no interest or profit. Obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a person turns away from his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When disaster strikes, it usually doesn't take long for people to start blaming others. You can depend upon it. Something goes wrong and fingers start pointing and they start pointing outward at others. We are generally eager to take credit for success and reluctant to take responsibility for failure. That is the way Of humanity after the fall early in the 6th century BC the people of Israel faced a crisis of responsibility remember Babylon had invaded Jerusalem and exiled brought back with them into Babylon thousands of influential Jewish people Israel's kings and their armies offered futile resistance to the world power of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. The nation was clearly doomed. They weren't finished yet, but they were doomed. And so like all irresponsible people, they sought an alibi. The people said, uh, this is our father's fault. This isn't our fault that all this has come upon us. It's their fault. And this sentiment was so common among the people that it became a proverb, a popular saying. We have them in our day as well. Uh, but this was a saying, a proverb. Here it is again in chapter 18, verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In Ezekiel 18, God rebukes Israel's blame-shifting. Yes, it's true, the leaders of Judah had brought God's people into disaster. You might read chapter 19 sometime today where God teaches Ezekiel a lamentation for these last kings of Israel who actually had sealed the doom of God's people. Lament for them, even though they've helped uh, uh, bring about your failure. And yet, each individual Israelite was responsible to God for his or her own decisions. Yes, the kings haven't helped you. The false prophets have been a disaster, but you're responsible for yourself. In these chapters, particularly chapter 18, God calls us to own our sin. To own our sin. And He encourages personal responsibility, the assumption of personal responsibility, by revealing His interest in our lives and promising healing for genuine repentance. So he not only says, be responsible for yourself, but he also encourages us to do it by revealing his character and his promises to us. To profit from this chapter, we should consider three things. First of all, the proverb. Second, the correction to the sentiment of this proverb. And third, the application. What are we to do? If this proverb is not the way, then what is the way? So first of all, the proverb. Uh, Listen again, uh, the proverb, the sentiment that was circulating in Judah in the latter days of this uh, kingdom. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. There are, I think, two layers to this proverb. If we're going to understand it, we need to peel back these two layers. We first of all need to understand the proverb's symbols the actual symbols that are being used in this proverb. The proverb describes a dietary cause and effect. Something is eaten and there's a uh, consequence to what was eaten. And you know what that's like from your own experience. You've eaten a lemon slice or maybe you watched one of your children for the first time eat a lemon slice, not knowing what it was and the, the uh The response is priceless. Wonderful to see, isn't it? That, that total surprise. But, but it it triggers a sour taste, and our face shows it. Or perhaps you've drank very cold water, and it stung the nerves uh, in your teeth. Teeth set on edge is a way of describing the result of eating sour food. It's a euphemism. It's a manner of speaking. But at the literal level, the point of the proverb is very simple. The choices that are made in terms of what is put in one's mouth have consequences. Your teeth may be set on edge if you eat sour things, or if you eat a spicy pepper, your lips and tongue will burn. It's just what happens when you put something in your mouth. But this proverb has a twist to it we get the the idea of dietary cause and effect. You put something in your mouth, and if it's extreme, you're going to notice it. But this proverb has a twist. A father ate sour grapes, and a child's teeth are set on edge. Let me just ask you to imagine this, children. Imagine this afternoon. You sit down at at the dinner table. And mom pulls out of the oven a steaming lasagna. I mean, this thing is so hot. The cheese is still bubbling up. There's steam coming out the sides of the pan. Maybe if you listen close, you can hear the sizzling. And and mom sets it on the table. Dad offers a prayer, scoops up a huge portion of it onto his plate and waiting almost no time since it's been in the oven, uh, takes a gigantic bite. There's steam coming off it as it goes into his mouth. And as soon as he puts it in his mouth, your mouth burns. What would you say if that happened this afternoon? I know what you'd say. You would say three words, maybe. That's not fair. That's not fair. Dad was the impatient one. He ate that steaming lasagna. Why is my mouth burning? That that's exactly that's exactly the sentiment of the people of. Judah. And if, you were, if that were to happen to you today, it's weird to think about, isn't it? But if that were to happen, you'd be right to say, that's not fair. I'm being patient. I waited. I, I took a little bite and I blew on my lasagna and I waited for it to cool down. Why is my mouth burning? But understand that the people of Israel weren't using this proverb to describe a genuine injustice that was committed against them. So you understand how that proverb could be understandable if that happened in that, in that literal sense. But that's not what they're doing with this proverb. The proverb was meant to shift responsibility from the children to the fathers. In other words, to use my silly illustration, the children too were eating steaming hot lasagna and blaming their fathers when their mouths got burnt. Jeremiah makes the point more bluntly in Lamentations 5, verse 7. He says this, Our fathers... So this is a different way of, of voicing the sentiment of this proverb. Our fathers sinned, the people said, and are no more. They're dead and gone. They sinned. They are no more. And we bear their iniquities. Lamentations 5, 7. Our fathers sins, you can hear the people say, have landed us in Babylon. What did we do? It was our fathers who are responsible for this. They might have left us a rich legacy. But, as Lamentations 5.2 says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers in our homes to foreigners. That's not what fathers should do for their children. They should have left a legacy, an inheritance. And now here we are in Babylon, ruled over by strangers. But you see what's happening here? The people, by using this proverb, gave no thought to their responsibility. They refused to accept blame. They failed to ask the question, what have we done? Yes, it's true your fathers were wicked. But what have you done? This victim mentality, which is obviously... What's, being, what's happening here is as old as Adam and Eve. And it continues today. Politicians always blame the other party. It doesn't matter if that was their position a few years back on their platform. They blame the other party. Younger generations commonly fixate on the errors of their predecessors, or older generations blame the crumbling of society on the new generation. People who feel oppressed seek comfort in the faulty theory that those in power must be to blame for their problems. When churches falter, congregations indict their pastors. Pastors resent their people. Conflicts between parents and children, husbands and wives are often a cacophony of blame-shifting. And we could go on and on and on. This is, the, this is the thing we do. Something bad happens to me, and I immediately think, who can I blame? And I look outward. I don't think about myself one of our favorite go-to thoughts and expressions is, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And so we get the idea behind this proverb. It all the time, even though we don't use the same words. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Someone else did something, and now I bear the responsibility for it, even though I'm not—I haven't been wrong. So that's the proverb, a, a sort of simple um, thing that we experience every day with a little bit of a twist. That's used to dismiss responsibility for one's actions. Let's consider, second, the correction. God says, you shall not use this proverb anymore in Israel. But understand, the the proverb isn't entirely wrong. It's not entirely wrong. Clearly, so. but I I mention this because we're going to get to the correction, but we're not dismissing the sentiment behind the proverb 100%. Clearly, human actions affect others. Bad leaders can indeed turn a nation away from God and invite ruin. Ezekiel 19, as I mentioned, makes this point. It was right to mourn the end of David's dynasty. That's what chapter 19 is. It's a lamentation for the last several kings of Israel. David's dynasty is no more, and you ought to mourn that reality, even though the sins of these last kings endangered the people. We won't go to chapter 19 now, but understand uh, it it laments, for example, uh, Jehoiakim. He, we know from the history of the Bible, refused to pay tribute to Babylon. Babylon. The king came in and said, here's how much you owe from year to year. He said, no, I won't do it. But chapter 19, verse 9 says that it was his son, Jehoiachin, who was exiled in a cage. The father rebelled and the son was sent into exile. The rebellion of the last king, Zedekiah, caused his nation's collapse and virtually ended Israel's national identity. So it is it is true that fathers in the sense of leaders can turn a nation away from God and invite ruin. Sin also has generational consequences. This exile followed centuries of sin that truly exhausted God's patience. One generation to the next wandered away from God. God, in fact, does, as Exodus 20, verse 5 says, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. We could say it differently. Non-discipleship usually bears rotten fruit. God's um, nation was composed of parents who were to tell to their children the things that God had done, to tell their children about his wonderful grace, tell them that they must turn from their sins and, and, and embrace with a believing heart the promises of God. And so many parents of that day didn't do it. Instead, they introduced idol worship and all kinds of wicked practices. And that non-discipleship bore bad fruit. Unfaithful parents, and we should understand this, this should put some weight on our shoulders as we take up our call to parent or to be influences within a congregation to the children that God has given to us. Unfaithful parents sin not only against their kids, but against their grandkids and against their great-grandkids and against their great-great-grandkids. And we don't know how far that may extend into the future. Spiritually careless parents truly poison their family tree. And so this proverb can accurately describe reality. God corrects it because as a motto, not as a description of some aspect of reality, but as a motto, as a rule to live by, this proverb was faulty. Because it told only part of the story, only the father's side of the story, what the parents had done, because it tells only part of the story, the proverb inspired fatalism. In other words, There's nothing that we can do. There's no responsibility that I bear. My fate is sealed because my father ate sour grapes or my father wandered away from the Lord. Look at all the wicked things my father did or our fathers did or our kings are doing or whatever. There's nothing that can be done. This is just where we are today. This is just my destiny. Because it told only part of the story, the proverb encouraged the neglect of, of responsibility. Imagine if you kept saying this to yourself over and over. You know, the fathers have done what they've done and and now I bear the consequence. Imagine if you said that to yourself every morning, every evening. I'm a victim. There's nothing that I can do. It's all the fault of somebody else. You, you You would say, well, I have no responsibilities. I shift the responsibilities to somebody else. But understand this. Blame shifting is a foolish policy it's a foolish policy it prevents us from working toward real change because if it's if it's the fathers who had done this thing who needs to change who needs to change the fathers right I don't need to change I'm just the victim and, and that's just one one relationship, or if the government has done this, or if, you know, my children have done this to me, or if my husband or my wife, then I don't have to change. It's interesting that when God renewed covenant with the Israelites uh, recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as the people were about to enter into the promised land, it had been uh, a two generations since the law was first given, and God says to the people who had now grown up Uh, apart from those who had died in the desert, God says, the Lord made a covenant with you. It was not with your fathers that God made this covenant, but with you, Deuteronomy 5.3. Well, in a certain sense, of course, it was with their fathers that God had made this covenant. It was literally with them, their fathers and their grandfathers. What God is saying to the people is, um, resist thinking only about the covenant that God has made with your fathers. Resist thinking only about their responsibility. They were in covenant with God. They did have responsibilities, and now their bodies litter the wasteland because they did not keep covenant with God. But that's not your responsibility right now. God has made a covenant with you and not just with your fathers. Jeremiah offers this correction in chapter 31, Jeremiah 31 verses 29 and 30. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. And then he takes that proverb that Ezekiel cites here and he corrects it. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Jeremiah says there, I fixed your proverb. It's not your fathers have eaten sour grapes and your teeth are set on edge. It's you've eaten the sour grapes. You've bitten into that sour lemon. You've eaten that chili, that hot chili or that hot uh, uh, bite of lasagna. You've done it. And now you bear the consequences. Ezekiel, of course, makes the same point here in chapter 18. No one's righteousness is judged by the morality of others. And that's what Israel was trying to do here. Our morality is being judged by the acts of other people. We're just a victim. If you trust in Christ, and if you pursue holiness, you are righteous, the chapter says. You will be harmed by the sins of others. You will be affected by their choices, and it will be hard if you've been uh, nurtured in a context uh, overseen by the sort of wicked people described in this chapter. But if you trust in Christ and you pursue holiness, you are righteous. You will live. Conversely, if you reject the gospel and live according to your foolish heart, no matter how righteous your parents were or no matter how good a legacy you come from, you have maybe parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who trust in the Lord. Maybe you can't find uh, time in your family's tree when your people didn't go to church and worship the Lord faithfully. But if you reject Christ and turn from the ways of the covenant, you are wicked and you will die. God says, that's, the, that's how you should look at life. Let me correct this proverb. If you eat sour grapes, your teeth will be set on edge. That's the correction. That brings us then to the application. What is God calling us to do as a result of what he's communicating here in Ezekiel 18 and 19, I'd like to consider with you three practices that this chapter demands. Three practices that this chapter demands of each one of us. Number one, resist blaming others. Resist blaming others, and that's for you, not for the person sitting next to you. Who you think needs to resist blaming others, probably you. That's for you. You need to resist blaming others. Stop letting other people's actions excuse your irresponsibility. Yes, people have hurt you, just like you've hurt others. And maybe your hurt has been extreme. There will be someone who would hear this message somewhere who would say, you don't understand how I've grown up or the influences that I've come under or the strange things that happen in my mind. You just don't understand. I don't have the same kind of responsibility as the next person. Maybe maybe you grew up with terrible parents, the worst kind of parents imaginable. Listen. God describes in Ezekiel 18 an awful father, a truly awful father who is, I'm reading now from verses 10 through 12, this father is violent, a shedder of blood who defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy and commits robbery. And that's only a few of the things mentioned here. A truly awful father Commentators suspect, or suggest at least, that uh, who's being described here may be King Manasseh, a truly awful person whose father, Hezekiah, was a godly man, who's also described in uh, this chapter. But listen, with a truly awful father, one as terrible as King Manasseh, the son retains personal agency. The son retains personal agency. The son is not responsible for the choices of the father, is not doomed by the decision of the father. He can refuse to follow in his father's ways. He can live unto the Lord despite his disadvantages. And God gives an example of a son who does that in this chapter. And commentators suspect perhaps uh, he's talking about here godly King Josiah, who was not the son, but was the grandson of Manasseh. And Josiah said, I'm not being like my grandfather. My father, my grandfather's eaten sour grapes, but I'm not going to allow his actions to dictate mine. And so Josiah leads a powerful revival. In Israel, totally unlike the behavior of his grandfather. God says in verse 4 of our chapter, all souls are mine. You see what he's doing there? All souls are mine. He's saying that we each stand before God as responsible persons. All souls are mine. Everyone will have to give account to God of what he has done with the life that God gave him. It is true that God does not give all people the same kind of life. It is true that some people have terrible parents or were raised in bad uh, places under bad dictators or whatever it might be. We do not all have the same, come from the same stock, so to speak. But we need to resist blaming others. That won't help. Take responsibility for yourself. It's the only way to live before God. Second, repent of your sin. So responsible before God is sort of a mindset, isn't it? It is a way of affirming that I... Uh, I'm not responsible for the sins of my parents and their sins don't dictate my life or whatever relationship you might be thinking of. That's a mindset. But here's an action. Repent of your sin. Turn from them. This is God's promise in verses uh, 21 and 22 of our chapter. If a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes. This is why earlier we noted the importance of the law of God, the actual rules of God, where he says, this is how you shall live and in no other way shall you live. You don't just repent of things that society says are bad or things that you're disgusted about in yourself. You repent of actual sins against the law of God. And then you Keep God's statutes. And if this person does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. Repentance means turning away from sin, making a conscious decision to say, no, this sin dishonors God and I won't keep doing it. Uh, Yeah, it's true. My mom did this sin. Probably her mom did too. But I'm not going to do it anymore or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm going to take responsibility for myself. I'm going to repent of my sins. I'm going to obey God's law. And listen, there is great liberty in repentance. The most enslaving attitude is a victim mentality. It says, I am simply a product of my environment and nothing can be done about it. Everybody else is to blame for who I am. That's enslaving. That's enslaving. Because everybody else is going to have to change before your circumstances improve. There's great liberty in repenting. You can't determine how others will live. And you aren't to blame for how you were born or the family in which you grew up. But you are responsible for what you do with your life and what you need to do with your life every single day. Throughout the days, repent of your sins. Refuse to shift blame. Repent of your sins. Third, regard God as merciful. Regard God as. Here's the encouragement here to resist blame shifting, to repent of your sin. You have to regard God as merciful. He's not a tyrant, he's not absent, he's not dead. And this God, who is very much alive and sovereign over all things, actually prefers mercy over justice, over judgment, I should say. He prefers mercy over judgment. Listen to God in chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So what does God rather? He would rather you turn and live. He prefers mercy over judgment. In fact, God is so merciful that he gave his own son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's how merciful God is. This son of God from his humanity comes from one generation after another, after another, after another of sinners. And yet God says, I give you a savior from a sinful line, a sinner, uh, a, a, a line of people who are sinful in every aspect of their being, but this one will be different. This one will not be a sinner. He'll be like you in every way except he will be righteous. He'll be perfectly righteous. And so we we have the evidence that God is merciful, that he prefers mercy, that he loves mercy so much that he would give his son. Justice says, as Ezekiel records in 1820, the soul who sins shall die But the gospel's message is better than that. The gospel's message, working alongside the law, is this. You have sinned. So justice says, the soul who sins shall die. But the gospel with the law says, you have sinned. And in fact, you have sinned worse than you think. And in fact, it is your fault. It's not somebody else's. But still you don't have to die. Give your sins to Jesus. Receive his righteousness and commit to living like him. And you will live. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this liberating message in this chapter Help us to do what you've called us to do. Assume responsibility. Turn from our sins and trust in your mercy demonstrated in the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help each one of us to do that. Even those who have perhaps a harder task in doing just that. Help us and free us thereby.